So Vulcan is rolling. XH558 is on the move. Savor this extraordinary. Breaking parachute streams. Falcons, 18 wheels, are back on terra firma. So our wonderful, big, beautiful, majestic old lady, rock star, goddess of the skies, has finally grounded forever. But I do want to quote the wonderful children's author Dr. Seuss who said don't cry because it's over smile because it happened Sean Maffitt's emotional words from October the 28th 2015 and the final landing of Vulcan XH558 at Doncaster's Robin Hood Airport where it has remained in the accessible open to the public Hangar 3 ever since until early February in 2017 when the aircraft was moved into storage in Hangar 1. Money, not for the first time, is the issue. The lease on the old hangar had run out. Staff have been laid off. And at present, an initial £200,000 are needed while Vulcan to the Sky Trust restructures and tries to put in place their ambitious plans for a purpose-built visitor centre to preserve the Vulcan for the future. As always, controversy lurks. Last summer, the trust acquired Canberra WK163 with a view to restoring it to fly over a period of years. Buying and moving it cost around £50,000. Add to that the costs of paying a staff of 22 people, not to mention a chief executive seemingly generous expenses, and people want answers. Not least because the promised public fast taxi runs at Doncaster have never happened, and many view the proposed Etna project to be built there as simply too ambitious, too expensive and too big a risk. At an ambitious, expanding airport, many observers felt a final grounding at Doncaster was a poor choice of location by the Trust. Here, in a special edition of UK Airshow Review's display frequency, we put to VTTS Chief Executive Dr Robert Fleming the key questions in an exclusive and lengthy interview. Here then is the truth about Vulcan XH558. This is Display Frequency and I'm Dan O'Hagan. Running it for the show, starting! Oh! On Wednesday, February the 8th, I sat down for around an hour with Dr. Fleming, so here, subject by subject, is what was discussed. First, I asked him to update the current situation regarding the move from Hangar 3 to 1 and where that has left the project. Well, the project status is, as everybody knows, um, we have gone through quite a difficult period. Uh, the aircraft is in Hangar 1 at Doncaster, uh, which is a bonded warehouse, and sadly that means we can't take the public in to see her. Uh, the assets are safe. Uh, we have restructured the trust so as 
to make sure our costs are less than the revenues we see. And very sadly, that's meant I've had to let go of uh, 14 friends and colleagues, uh, including Michael and myself. Um, the Trust has a long-term future. Uh, we are, I am, and uh, Andrew Edmondson, working on uh, the details of uh, a new hangar, which is actually uh, designed to be appropriate, appropriately structured for a visitor attraction. The airport are being as helpful as they can be. Uh, I have to say that they've been very supportive with all of our um, plans. Uh, that is the medium-term goal, to be ready to move into that as soon as we can. We originally were offered a three-year lease on Hangar 3. Uh, we decided to sign up to a year because we didn't know whether or not the business plan for the Hangar would work. Remember, uh, we only occupied a part of Hangar 3 and the rest of the space, including the Hangar floor space, was actually rented out to uh, other tenants. What we didn't know was whether or not we could make that work. So in December 2015, we signed up for a year, but with the intention that that would then be extended beyond that. The airport came to me in August of last year with a request that we did in, move, in fact move out from Hangar 3 to Hangar 1. Uh, that was because of the growth in their cargo business. And that's actually a good news story for the airport. But as ever, uh, commercial uh, considerations trump anything that a charity might want to do. And so in, in, in August, uh, we were destined to move out into Hangar 1. But at the time, a intent to carry on the visitor and tour business in Hangar 1. It wasn't until December, and this is the, the shock moment, did we discover that uh, because of... Um, Border Force and Department for Transport rules, we could not take the public into Hangar One, and that that was a that was a pretty difficult moment because we realised that we could not keep on running with the structures with the plans that we had. Um, December and January were really uncomfortable for the whole of the the trust because we knew we had to lose an awful lot of cost to survive. Uh, the uh, the aim of the, the board and myself is that you've, you've got to do whatever you can to stop going in, insolvent or into administration. You, have, you almost have a legal, well, I think you have a legal right, a legal responsibility to do that. So the only way forward was sadly to get rid of a, a lot of our team. Um, I've had to say goodbye to a number of really good friends. Uh, but we're now on a stable footing. Uh, the aircraft is safe in Hangar 1. Uh, we, we move forward. We need a plan for the rest of the year uh, but we're working on that as well um, so status is as everybody knows um, we have a plan for going forward you mentioned the hangar one the problems of, of access to it mm -hmm. does that underline the problems of being at a commercial airport uh, this is this is this is interesting because um, I think there's not been a good understanding of what the trust is all about uh, I don't know if you've read our objects as a uh, as a uh, charity but we're about flying aircraft we're not a museum uh, the the aim is to continue to fly aircraft our long-term vision is really exciting um, flying aircraft means you have to be at uh, an airfield which is a place where 
um, the regular aircraft uh, movements. A licensed airfield is, is, is right for us. The issues associated with uh, unlicensed airfields are quite significant. Um, have you heard of the Red Bull site at uh, Salzburg yes. Airport? Well, they're doing for piston engine aircraft what we would like to do for jet aircraft. I mean, the, the site is just amazing. It is, yeah, but that will take surely time and, and huge amounts of money. Yep, um, it's a big project. It will take five, ten years or so, but you have to have a vision. Remember back till 1996 when I started off with the Vulcan? You had this vision of getting this aircraft back to flight that people bought into, and it's the same idea that we've got moving forward. It's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of money. I mean, our current estimates are around 18 to 19 million. Mm. However, uh, when you look at the direction of jet aircraft, jet heritage aircraft flying in the UK post-Shoreham, there's a increasing view that this is exactly what we do to consolidate what we're currently doing as a country with jet heritage aircraft and make sure it's safe for the future. So, uh, this vision is a very powerful one, but it's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of money. Yes, people will say, though, OK, you've got the Vulcan, that is your first responsibility. Um, it can't fly, it's at an airport mm. now where it can't apparently leave. Um, surely your first goal has to be to make sure that aircraft, mm-hmm. the one your trust is all about, is secure As and safe long term. Absolutely. As a national uh, heritage asset, it's it's basically owned by us for the country. Uh, absolutely. Um, and the actions we're taking right right now are aimed at ensuring exactly that, that we look after XH558. That's why we've got the plans uh, for short term for this new hangar, purpose-built hangar. Uh, and that, that's where the, uh, the business is going. That's where the charity is going. Uh, we're also responsible for looking after WK163 as well. Um, that is an important aircraft in its own right. We do recognise these responsibilities and our plans are um, all about ensuring that we uh, carry out the things we need to do to discharge those responsibilities for looking after these assets. Perhaps the most controversial issue with the project was the decision to end the Vulcan's flying career at Doncaster, a choice which has been far from popular to outside observers and indeed even the Trust's most loyal supporters. Before discussing the reasons for not returning to Bruntingthorpe, I asked Dr Fleming at what stage was Doncaster chosen? Oh, quite a long time ago. Um, we'd started looking, we'd started talking about our long-term vision uh, for a, uh, a novel, innovative uh, location geared around inspiring the young in engineering and aviation. Um, in 2013. Uh, in fact, um, I briefed the Heritage Lottery Fund um, in October 2013. Uh, Bob Bewley, who was the Director of Operations there, was, uh, uh, was he's, a, he's a, a close, well, he's it's now le- left the HLF, but he's, uh, he was pretty close to what we were doing. And uh, everybody agreed that it was the right site for us, for all sorts of reasons. It's an active airfield, uh, it's a heritage site in its own right uh, from the point of view of the Vulcan, RAF Finningley. Uh, it's in an enterprise development zone. Uh, the local council have been extremely supportive of what we're doing. Uh, 
the local MP, Caroline Flint, actually actually has her offices about 200 yards away from us uh, at the at the airport. Oh, there's so many ticks in the boxes as we went through it. It was absolutely the right place to do it. And of course, we can demonstrate that from what we've done in the last year. We've had over 18,000 visitors through uh, Hangar 3 in the time that we opened for public tours last year, from the time we stopped flying until the end of October. Uh, It has been a remarkable success, and we're definitely there at the right place. Can you understand why people didn't want it to go to Doncaster? Oh yes, I'm I'm fully aware of the... um, uh, the various sites that people have identified as where they think the aircraft should be for all sorts of reasons. I'm, I was talking to David Walton only a couple of weeks ago about about uh, Bruntingthorpe. I mean, yes, we started off, off at Bruntingthorpe, and I have to, I'll be the first one to say um, if it wasn't for David and his father Cecil Walton, we would not have had a flying Vulcan. That what they did in terms of acquiring the aircraft into the spares, of course, and making sure she was safeguarded for uh, a few years before we were able to start off down the track returning her to flight. Uh, um, hats off to them. Brilliant. Um, the, the problem with um, Bruntingthorpe and other sites is they're not active airfields. Um, I remember when we were flying first flying 2007-2008 we actually had to fodder walk the whole of the two mile runway every time we flew uh, we had to bring in um, Farron uh, crash uh, Gatwick airport uh, they came, those guys came up and helped us when we wanted to fly it, it was a huge logistical challenge um, but with somewhere like Doncaster you don't need to worry about that sort of thing um, I, I'm worried about the future of some of these airfields we've, we've, we've lost Dunsfold uh, Elvington, the owner of the um, the airfield there, uh, hasn't allowed them to taxi for a year. Um, we don't know what's happening at Scampton because the MOD is trying to sell off land as fast as they can. I know the Reds are there at the moment, uh, but it's it must be a vulnerable site because it's so close to the to Lincoln. Um, we're waiting to hear news on that front because um, uh, the. We've got quite a, a good relationship with Scampton, but I, I'd, be, I'd be really sad if they decided to shut that airfield down. Um, yeah, we looked around at all of these options and Doncaster came out the top. You mentioned David Walton. One rumour doing the rounds is that there is some kind of great fallout between yourselves and David Walton. Is that the case? Has there ever been any friction there over money's owed or, or any problems in the past? There was a time when... Um, we were going through some really uncomfortable time financially. This would be 2007, eight, uh, where we were desperately trying to keep the, the project on the road so we could get the aircraft back to flight. And we were forced with, um, at the same time as we ran up quite a large bill with marshals, we were we were. F- forced to delay payments to the Waltons and obviously that generated to uh, because of the the hangar rent um, that generated a a certain amount of discomfort but that was paid off years ago and certainly um, I mean when I spoke to David it was a friendly conversation so uh, yes there was a there was a time and I have the first one to admit it but no that's, that's fine now right in day one he said could you come back here and we said well we'll look at it in, in the future I know that David personally would like the aircraft back there but it's it's just not the right place for us 
because we can't fly other aircraft on a regular basis. And but at the moment you don't have other aircraft that fly. But that's the vision. There's been criticism in trust emails about the, the runway's quality. Do you think that's entirely wise given that runway is currently in use um, in a, on, on a commercial basis there? Um, it is appropriate and I need to point out one important thing f- to you. Uh, modern airliners have turbofan uh, engines where the vast majority of the air goes around the side of the core of the engines. Jet heritage aircraft are pure turbojets and every ounce of air goes through the whole engine which makes them an awful lot more vulnerable to FOD damage than modern turbofans. And that is a consideration which we have very much in, in mind. That's why, for example, we did the FOD walk every time we flew from Bruntingthorpe. The technology make, means that modern airliner engines are, are much less vulnerable to FOD damage than the older heritage engines. The worst thing you want to do is, is lose an engine. People will say, there they have Victor, they have a VC-10 Air, the Comet. It's the Vulcan's natural home to be alongside those machines for a living Cold War museum. It's, it's a ready-made museum. It just needs the Vulcan. understand that. Um, you wonder how long these things can carry on. Um, as ever, these aircraft are, are kept outside. Um, I'm concerned uh, that... In, in due course of time, 20 years, something like that, things will happen to render what they do there far more difficult. Uh, Bruntingthorpe itself um, must be vulnerable to um, development. I do agree with the idea that if you could possibly get some of these machines together, it would be really nice, but, but for how long? And could you actually... Could you actually deliver on what everybody wants, which is to see these things in the air? Well, that won't happen. Um, But equally, the Vulcan, we know, will never fly again. Sadly, that is the case, yes. It's been always called the people's aircraft. Um, The people didn't want Doncaster. So do you feel that maybe you've gone against the wishes of your most loyal supporters in basing it at Doncaster? We did a poll some time ago looking at where people uh, wanted us to go. um, And... uh, Doncaster was up there at the top. Bruntingthorpe was not top. Um, but when you have to look at the uh, totality of the reasons for choosing a location um, to set up shop, uh, everything considered, Doncaster turned out to be the right place. So no regrets at all no. at Doncaster? No, no regrets. Public access to Doncaster has been another source of friction. Still, there's been no fast taxi run, nor large-scale event held with the Vulcan, 18 months on from that final landing. You have to remember that once we lost the permit to fly, there was no longer the rubber stamp on the aircraft's technical uh, readiness. So what we had to do was basically show the airport that despite we didn't have a formal CAA permit to fly we were still uh, we still had a uh, technically um, I'm going to say airworthy it's not airworthy well it is it is airworthy because it could fly Uh, it's just not allowed to that we were still airworthy in a way that protected um, the availability of the runway and we had the right procedures in place to make sure that um, we could do this safely again because we didn't have the 
operational approval uh, to fly. They wanted to make sure that all our procedures in place were were appropriate, and they've been very helpful. It has in, taken some time, though. In this post 9/11 world, is it feasible that public will ever get access, airside, as it were, at a commercial airport like Doncaster? We've done it before. Yes, absolutely. On a large scale. We're talking at the moment. We've talked. We've done 40, 50 people. Um, Large scale we're working on. We have discussed this in principle of the airport and it's a matter of managing the the situation. Step by step is the approach that we've been adopting. Uh, Remember of course that we do at the moment have the Bawtree Road site which is along the length of one way to the west, to the east sorry, uh, which is actually quite close and affords a really quite a good view to to spectators anyway. Bear with us, because it is something we know we need to do and it's something we're working on. People will say, though, that's another reason not to be there, because it's an airfield where the public can't get up close and personal in any great number. Well, um, there, was a, there was a consideration as to whether or not we wanted to do um, regular taxi runs with fewer people or once or twice a year with loads of people, and that's the other, other equation. Um, in a way, it's far more manageable if you do it on a regular basis with fewer people. Right now, the aircraft is in Hangar 1, out of bounds to the public, while a new hangar is being built. The plan is to have that up and ready in a year's time. Despite online rumours to the contrary, as yet, a request for planning permission has yet to be filed. It's being independently developed. Um, the airport are working with us on acquiring the land that uh, it will go on, uh, which is not owned by the airport. It's actually outside the airport boundary at the moment. So the number of things that we're working on to make to make it a reality. Um, we're looking at very long leases here, uh, 60, 100 years, that sort of thing. Um, we need to design it so that, um, assuming we move out eventually into a larger facility, a la Red Bull Hangar 7, um, then that hangar is reusable for something like maybe a VIP um, business jet type facility. Um, so we're working with the airport on making sure that that sort of consideration is also borne in mind. There's a, there's a lot to do and these things end up by being really complex. And how far down the line are we in terms of planning permission, um, funding being in place by this outside contractor? Still quite a long way to go. Um, We've talked in principle about planning to DMBC, sorry, Doncaster Municipal Borough Council, um, and they're very supportive. So once we've got the plans in place, we've got the we've got the drawings in place, but there are some uh, aspects of the groundwork that still need to be finalised. And I think it's going to be a few weeks before we enter the planning permission uh, submission, and then it's I think it's twelve or thirteen weeks before you actually get the permission. But the build is really quick. The build's only about six months. Uh, it's being uh, built on a steel frame structure and we're working with a very supportive set of local firms who are willing to do things at cost and really bring the, bring the, uh, bring the price down. Now, could we have a case in the future where another tenant comes right. and says, OK, we'll pay the going rate and we're back at square one? No, we're not going to allow that to happen. That'll be tied up contractually in the right way. The airport does re- recognise that we need a long-term home there. They're um, you've seen probably the quotes from Steve Gill, the airport director. They're, they're really keen on us staying for the long term, and no, that'll be tied up contractually in the right way. The current appeal is to raise two hundred thousand pounds. 
The feeling among the public is that the purpose for this money was rather ambiguous, so I asked Dr Fleming to clarify exactly what that money was for and what the next step would be after that. The shock of knowing we couldn't um, hold any more tours and events in, uh, in the hangar actually left us with a, a pretty big revenue hole. Um, we were making a fair amount of money from the tours and events uh, which went to go to pay the, the cost base and that, that's just gone like that, uh, disappeared completely. And the other, the other cost is the restructuring uh, of the company. You can't let people go without paying them redundancy. Uh, and that, for the number of people we've let go, which is sort of two-thirds of the organisation, has ended up by being quite a lot. And that, that 200,000 uh, puts us on to the sustainable base. We're not, in, we're not intending or planning to go out with another appeal whilst we're in hibernation mode. So that once we're in hibernation mode, we, on a conservative basis, can see us moving forward without another, you know, panic appeal. I think right now you're up to fifty thousand pounds from the public. Yeah, I think there that's just under. I can't um, remember. No. Are you happy with where the level is at at the moment? Uh, to be honest, um, my own view was that I was surprised how successful it was being. Um, it's as ever with us. It's small amounts from large numbers of people. It's the five, ten pounds from ten thousand people. I, we, we still circulate an email newsletter to nearly a hundred thousand people every week. Uh, there are lots and lots of people who are friends of the Vulcan, and they—they're the ones who chip in a fiver. And it's amazing how you can, over time, grow up uh, quite a considerable amount of money. Um, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's the equation which has worked for us, certainly. Looking at social media, um, your Facebook page, which uh, has always been very pro uh, the trust, is now almost entirely negative. Um, that must be um, a concern for you that you, your main supporters have now almost turned. I think that's because we haven't communicated the messages um, well enough. Uh, we have responded to a lot of the questions that were put on Facebook uh, more formally in terms of uh, sort of Q&A, question and answer that's accessible to everybody um, which we send out, we produce links to, it's actually on our website and we will continue to look at the questions that people are asking um, the numbers of people responding on Facebook though is still a very small proportion of the total number of supporters that we see um, there is the the, uh, the way that the supporter profile works uh, there are a considerable number of people who we know don't use email we know don't use uh, social media and we're in contact with them through postal mailings and all the rest of that stuff a major problem of this latest crisis has been that people have been unconvinced by some of the information coming out of the trust not least claims over the profitability of the hangar tours. Um, you mentioned the hangar tours. Um, there was a figure quoted, I think, of £50,000 a month profit. Now, is that profit after all expenses paid, all wages, all, all maintenance, all rent? Is it pure 
Was it pure profit, £50,000 a month? It's viewing, viewing the hangar tours as a business, its own right. So the resources that go into running the tours, so the, the employees' salaries, etc., it does not include things like hangar rent, etc. It's just looking at the hangar tours as a business, its own right. Um, and uh, that, that's a, a figure that we, we rely on. Obviously, that profit is taken out of the hangar tours business and then used for things like insurance, rent, all the rest of that stuff. And as part of the um, the group consolidated accounts, you can you can see where it stands. I mean, the 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 trust as a whole financial year ended 31st of October 2016, turned over about 2.8 million pounds. Uh, so it's it's a sizable business in its own right. Um, there are contributions to that from all aspects of the trust's activities and that does include for example the income from tenants in Hangar 3. It does include a considerable amount from merchandise uh, but it's, it, it is, it's just, as I said, it's a sizable business. The restoration to flight was kick-started by a £2.7 million grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund but what are VTTS's responsibilities to the HLF now the aircraft has ceased flying? We have a contract with the HLF that lasts, lasts for 80 years from 2005, so it's still got considerable time to go, way beyond my time. Um, the, the main aspect of that contract was delivering the aircraft into operation and displaying her in front of the, uh, in front of the public. Um, we are viewed as one of the Lottery Fund's most successful uh, projects. Uh, one of the ways they do that is to look at what income we've managed to raise um, following their grant. Uh, as you know, they gave us a grant of £2.7 million. Well, after, over the lifetime of the project, from sort of 2000 onwards, we've actually raised and spent about £27 million, which is an incredible uh, leverage for the Lottery Fund. They, they, they really think that's a, a real success in, in their terms, the way they measure these things. Um, in terms of our uh, remaining responsibilities, they are to look after the asset, uh, make sure she is kept in uh, running position, uh, situation, uh, to show her off to the public, but more importantly now, to tell the story. So education, interpretation around her, and indeed any other assets that we might have. Um, that we're, we're obviously uh, delivering. We have to um, do things like ensure the ensure the aircraft um, but uh, I was talking to the HLF only the other day and uh, they seem pretty happy. When I look at Canberra um, I'm pretty keen that um, we apply for another lottery fund grant to assist that particular restoration uh, based on the uniqueness of that specific aircraft. Um, this again, it's a, another long-term project. If I look at um, where we were with the Vulcan, I reckon it's probably going to be five years before we see the camera flying. It's going to take a long time, uh, but we're determined to do it. The original plan was to retire the Vulcan to Duxford, I think, with the original HLF application. Um, when did that change, and at what point did you inform the HLF that it was going to be based at Doncaster? Oh, this is when we were looking at what we could do after we stopped flying. I proposed to the board that the worst thing we could do was leave the Vulcan in a museum because it would lose its 
attractiveness, it would become um, a sterile exhibit. Um, we, we also considered the um, fact that we didn't think it was right for it to go to any other site which already had a Vulcan, which obviously Duxford does. Um, that didn't seem to be appropriate. And over 2012, 2013, we worked up some ideas about what we wanted to do with the Vulcan. One of the key things was our experience of seeing the reaction of youngsters, both when they saw the aircraft fly, but also in, in the hangar. And it's that aspect of um, awe and inspiration that we thought we should leverage. And this is why this whole idea of getting young involved in... Um, activities to inspire them into um, engineering, aviation, that's where that grew, grew from. I briefed the Lottery Fund in October 2013 about what we want to do and where we want to do it and I have emails to say, great idea, go ahead. Is the aircraft's fate, whatever that may be, to be forever at Doncaster? Was a move away by whatever means looked at as the Trust addressed this latest crisis. Was moving from Doncaster ever looked at in the last three or four months? It has passed our mind obviously um, and indeed there was an informal conversation with the Civil Aviation Authority. Um, no formal request as to whether or not a, permit, uh, a, a uh, transit flight um, would be allowable but their reaction was it's going to be very very hard um, in thinking about that response and having uh, again informal conversations with um, people in the CAA uh, my conclusion, it's my personal conclusion is the CAA would almost certainly demand that the airworthiness of the aircraft be underwritten by VA systems, Rolls Royce etc and I know that they would not do that because the CAA don't have any competences in the aircraft and they'd look to those companies who after all still have product liability responsibility for the Vulcan to do that and our conclusion was it's no go um, we're in the right place and um, we're staying no formal uh, request to work that up would be quite 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 a lot of effort but we think we know what the response would be given informal conversations moving by road was oh, never yeah. an option good lord no <laughs> you you go to Hendon and have a look at the Vulcan there, and it's it's at a systems level it's completely trashed. It would it would be really really difficult and take an awful lot of time and resource. Um, no, that's that's not that's not that's not something I would personally support. Was Cranfield ever an option? For yes, you? it was. Back in 2013, we did look at Cranfield. Um, Cranfield is a university. The the educational inspirational aspects of what we're trying what we'd like to do and not um, closely coupled to Cranfield um, they are developing the site anyway we don't know whether or not we would be able to build a hangar there um, funnily enough I'm actually talking to Cranfield next week I'm going to see Professor Ian Gray there so it's still there's still conversations because we're all part of this big aerospace family as a uh, 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 we, we do have close connections with a lot of the aerospace partners, we're still sponsored by Airbus, for example. Um, we're viewed as, uh, very, in a very friendly way by the aerospace industry, um, which is great help. 
as we sit here now, can you say it will never fly again, never fly out from Doncaster? I'm as certain as I can be uh, that it will never fly out of Doncaster. That's not a, an absolute no. <laughs> if there was a different person who took over from me, um, well, you'd have to change the mind of so many people. I mean, it's, it's like uh, never say never. Um, I think it would be an impossible task and uh, I can't see anybody else uh, making it happen, let me put it like that, especially in the post-Shoreham world. There's an incredible amount of nervousness now about uh, um, jet aircraft. There, there, there are various uh, work items that exist, mandat mandatory permit directives, etc., affecting all of the jet heritage aircraft in the UK, um, I'm, I'm afraid for the future of jet heritage flying in the UK, which is why we want to do something uh, to put a serious effort by, uh, to ensure it, it carries on, probably on a national basis. And we've had some, we've had some good conversations with a number of people on that front as well. Uh, that goes back to the vision. Um, I hate to think what will happen if another jet goes down. Um, for whatever reason uh, I don't think the public are going to accept that so we, we have to be really really careful of what we do and that that it actually plays to our strengths so Vulcans of the Sky has been referred to by the CA as the way to do things uh, with our safety management system with the people we've got um, with the airworthiness focus uh, with the operations focus so um, what I want to do is make sure that we can carry on seeing jet heritage aircraft flying in the UK. That's a personal aim. The CAA support then would be crucial, but in October 2015, just weeks after the Shoreham crash, XH558 made headlines for the wrong reasons when she was observed near Grantham apparently rolling twice, something which was not allowed under her permit to fly. The pilots that day were Kev Rumans and Phil O'Dell, until now, the truth of whether those roles happened or not has never been revealed. Well, I was called on... Let me just put this into, into timescale. Uh, the, the last display was done at Shuttleworth on Sunday the 4th. Following weekend, the 11th and 12th, we were due to do two tours for the UK to allow everybody to see the Vulcan for the last time. One in the north, one in the south. That's, that's history. But on the day before, um, must have been Thursday the 9th, um, I was phoned up by Martin Withers to say that he'd been contacted by the CAA to say that they, in turn, had had a complaint about the Vulcan being seen as undertaking an aerobatic manoeuvre. Um, my own reaction was, uh, frankly, shock. and. To admit it, I was also quite angry because the one thing that we needed to do was fly those tours. We committed them, everybody was waiting for them, and if the CA were going to say, sorry, you're grounded, I, I, that was one of the few not very nice moments in the whole of the flying career of the Vulcan that I had. Um, 
in the event, um, the CAA did investigate and they decided to take no further action. Um, but, I mean, you've seen the video. Um, it, it happened, didn't it? It, it's, certainly it looked as though there were two roles. two roles. Whether or not they were true barrel roles, I don't know. I'm not an expert. Uh, I've heard differing opinion on, the, on that front. But, yeah. Uh, and of course, it's focused on, on, on the two guys in the front at the time. And they were the, they were the people responsible. They were they Phil were the and Kev. Yep. Yes, that's right. That's a matter of record. Um, and they went through a quite a difficult time. Uh, but at the end of the day, the CAA said, we're not going to take this any further. That's my understanding. Uh, but it is personal between the two pilots and the CAA. Uh, the trust was involved for a time right at the front because we had, as a result of those manoeuvres, had to do a, a formal check on the airframe to make sure it hadn't been overstressed. And the team worked frantically over the Thursday, Friday to make sure that we could get the tick in the box from marshals that the airframe had not been stressed as a result of those manoeuvres. But that was again ticked off and we were able to fly the tours. But I have to say it was a very uncomfortable couple of days. Yeah, and given it came only six weeks after Shoreham as well, was the timing couldn't have been worse, could it? Um, I have to agree with you. I, I, I have Kevin, Phil, our friends. Um, I believe that they actually really regret what happened. Um, but I, I can't comment on what went through their, their heads at the time. Did that affect your relationship with the CAA at all? Uh, latterly, no. Um, it, it hasn't. In, we've, we've always reacted uh, very professionally and openly. Uh, we have a, a brilliant relationship with the CAA. Andrew Edmondson is part of their team looking at developments on how uh, general aviation aircraft are, are managed. Um, no, we've got a, a very good working relationship with the CAA. Uh, incidentally, there's, don't know if you know, but there's a jet aircraft, Heritage Jet Aircraft Forum in place that uh, they had another one-day meeting last week, which I was at. Uh, and generally, the relationship is uh, a positive working one, absolutely. And of course, this wasn't the first time mistakes had been made. In May 2012, on takeoff, two engines were destroyed when silica gel bags inside the intakes were not removed. That was a classic switch Swiss cheese. You know about the Swiss cheese model, don't you, of the holes suddenly of being in, in alignment. Uh, it, sadly, it was a combination of um, distraction, because indeed the press were there. Um, our ground crew was distracted at the wrong time. Um, the background on this was that Rolls-Royce had asked us to put desiccant bags in the intakes to keep the engines dry, uh, but that um, action had not been transferred to uh, a checklist in terms of the items that were expected to be removed from the aircraft. That was an oversight. Um, you could say that... Um, the other, the other aspect was um, the team was trying to launch the, the aircraft uh, against a uh, time scale that made, meant they were, in some respects, rushing. Um, it was, you know, we understand fully the reasons. It was completely, as ever, unintentional. But it was a Swiss cheese incident when the holes all lined up and all the checks and balances failed. 
and we lost um, those two engines. Thank goodness they were a couple of our older engines. That that was a relief at the end of the day. But I have to say, I, I, um, the the incident was um, investigated fully by Ken Smart, who's on our board, uh, the ex-chief inspector of air accidents, and we understand exactly what happened and why. Uh, the lessons were learnt. Uh, we do operate a, a trust, a um, just um, model. Um, no action was taken against uh, the individuals involved. It wouldn't have been fair to do so. Um, a regretful incident. But going back to the current situation, it was always a source of contention as to exactly why a non-flying aircraft required a staff of, at one stage, 22 people. We have, you have to remember this is a business, it's a £2.8 million business. Um, the way those um, employees split down, um, we had five engineers. Um, sadly, we've had to let them go, although two of them, Taft Stone and Rick Lee, we're retaining, we're paying them a retainer and they're on zero-time contract just to make sure we can look after the aircraft. Uh, but there was nothing for them to do. We had originally hoped to start work on the Canberra. That didn't happen. So certainly for the past few months, there was there were some small projects for them to do. Um, one of them was helping on the schools build a plane project. Um, we have had a number of uh, school age uh, courses and apprentice type activity going around, but there was no core activity for the engineers to do. So. Uh, we had five people associated with running uh, Hangar 3. Remember, we had 30, 40 tenants. Um, it was a an active business. And, um, for example, there's a flying school as part of Hangar 3. It, it, there was a lot of activity in Hangar 3, and we had five people looking after it from the point of view of you know, cleaners, receptionist, um, location manager, that sort of thing. So five of the 22 were looking after Hangar 3. Uh, we had um, three people looking after merchandise. Um, we had three people looking after um, sort of customer facing, answering queries on the phone, looking after our database, looking after finance. And we had the three um, director, or four directors, so Martin, Andrew, um, Michael and myself. And it, I don't know if that adds up to 22, but it feels like it. That's the way it works. Did you feel... Um, By the way, can I just come back? Sure. That's 22 people generating £2.8 million. Pounds. So it's you know £110,000 per employee. That's not bad for an SME. Did you feel, um, for the right reasons, that you had a responsibility to keep those people, friends of yours, in work for as long as possible? One always tries to do the best for your friends and colleagues um, it could be viewed that we might have let the engineering team go f sooner because it, frankly there was not all that much f for them to do um, merchandise was incredibly important for us and very valuable last year uh, and continues to be so um, the hangar we had to um, sweat it as much as we can no, I, there, I can justify every one of those people in fact as ever, um, the team punched above its work, its weight. We, we, we did some amazing things given the number of people we got. It's put years on me. <laughs> <laughs> the value of classic jets, even airworthy ones, unsurprisingly, has dropped remarkably since the Shoreham crash. 
yet VTTS set a value on their main asset, XH558, of three quarters of a million pounds, a valuation which again attracted notable online attention. There are all sorts of ways of valuing assets, as you probably know. I mean, at the drastic end, the scrap value of the aircraft is probably about 7,000 quid. From a business point of view, you have to look at return on asset. And the way that we've looked at the aircraft is what, over time, revenue and income can we generate from this asset. And I've mentioned um, the, the amount of money, the number of visitors, um, the number of events that can be held around and underneath the Vulcan. And that's how you get to the valuation. It is done on a business return on asset basis. This asset can generate this income over time, so that translates into this asset is worth, in our case, £750,000. Is it a coincidence that that is also the same amount you would have to pay back the HLF if things were going to go wrong? Um, actually, HLF's n number is actually smaller than that. Um, I, we didn't um, cut uh, hairs, but uh, the HLF's involvement uh, from a financial basis is on a sliding scale. And as we flew, it went down from 2.7 million down to 2 million, down to a million, etc. as we went through the flying life of the aircraft. And even now, it's going down on a sliding scale uh, to eventually to zero. I can't remember the number every month, but it's, it's now on a straight line basis going down to zero after the end of the 80-year contract. But perhaps nothing has been more controversial than the thorny issue of what Dr. Fleming has been paid from the project over his time as chief executive. His salary is one thing, but arguably his expenses have attracted the most attention. The figures show that between 2013 and 2015, you yourself claimed 57,000 plus in expenses. People will say that's excessive. How do you respond to that? Um, I'm not going to defend it. I live in Hampshire. Uh, it's 220 miles each way up to Doncaster. Um, I not going to move. Um, my wife works in Hampshire. Um, a significant amount of that is actually the travel costs for me going up to Doncaster and then staying uh, either a night or two. Uh, I would say that most of that was in that, in that respect. Um, I'm based at my home office. I spend the majority of my time then there, but I do travel up to DSA and up to our other site in Nuneaton and indeed when it was open Hinkley. Um, there are certain things you can do with Skype and all the rest of it, but uh, frankly, face-to-face -face is really important. Can you see why people would see that as being, perhaps, in their eyes, excessive? I, I, I guess I can, but on the other hand, you've got to get the job done. Was it always done? Um, were the hotels always... The best priced were oh yeah we, we we arranged some really good deals with the local hotels up at uh, Doncaster for not only for ourselves but also for our um, visitors so yeah absolutely no, we, we, we're very mindful of the need as ever to keep costs under control do you think that you've been good value to the people who've been helping with uh, donations uh, bearing in mind I left a £150,000 job in Cisco to pick this up, £150,000 plus stock options. Um, I 
would be immodest of me to say, but I do think they've probably got a lot of value out of me. The Trust's Director of Business Development, Michael Trotter, has been under the spotlight too. The Trust's accounts show his involvement in a partnership which was paid large sums over several years. Now, Michael Trotter, your Business Development Director, or was, um, between the same years, 13 and 15, his partnership, uh, Greenways Business Services, were paid over £60,000 from the Trust for business services. What were those services? Um, Michael himself, uh, I'd, I'd have to say, I feel a little uncomfortable with answering for Michael here, um, because I don't know the details, but um, Michael was on contract for a while and then became an employee, so I, I can't tell what element of that was his contracted services as business development director and what was for example his expenses but also included that is our accountant uh, his wife Angela um, this is totally above board and in full knowledge of the of the board uh, and frankly it has been incredibly useful to have that team on board I'm, I'm not going to defend that one bit but I would say you need to talk to Michael directly because I don't know the detail but what were the business services? Do we know at all what they were? Accountancy or...? Yes, Angela was our accountant. The, the, uh, so she prepared the uh, annual accounts, uh, prepared the management accounts month by month. Um, was a huge uh, help when we set up the subsidiary companies. Um, no question about the value that she brought. Uh, Michael has been responsible for generating the £2.8 million income we've had last year and previous year. I mean, what a hero. Oh, brilliant. Were those services put up for tender um, and you think they were got at the, at the best possible price? I have no question at all. Um, I think that um, a man of Michael's experience and calibre probably could have got twice that in a private company. Um, the way that we've grown uh, has been organic. We, we haven't... Going out to tender and having to manage um, that sort of uh, relationship is actually quite an overhead. We obviously do go out to tender for things like the auditor and that, that sort of formal arrangement. But we, are, we have always relied an awful lot on the goodwill of our employees. They have gone beyond far beyond what would be expected them in, in a normal job and this is exactly the same with Michael and Angela. You mentioned there um, Michael and Angela and also the expenses. It's all above board I'm sure but it doesn't look good um, to the outside eye does it? I would rely on the report from our auditors. Uh, we, we, we are a charity, we are um, under the scrutiny of auditors who know about the charity, the charity commission itself, there have been no questions raised. Uh, they would be the ones who pulled out an objection if they saw anything that was untoward. But it's not what, what it is, it's how it looks to the outside observer, surely? Well, the outside observers should actually rely on the people who are in place, for example, our auditors, to make sure things are above board. Last year, a further £50,000 plus was paid out in acquiring and moving Canberra WK163. In hindsight, was acquiring the aircraft the right decision at the time? Absolutely. She's a unique aircraft. We're very proud of her. Um, you know she's a record, world record holder. 
Um, she's actually a test airframe, so she's got lots of flying time left. We reckon 20, 25 years left uh, on the airframe. She's in brilliant condition. Um, it is going to take some time to bring her back to flight. For example, we need to rebuild the cockpit. Um, historically vital uh, because she is the original bomber configuration, which is what the aircraft was designed to be. Britain's first jet fighter, jet bomber, I mean. And of course, um, will bring back to air displays a large jet aircraft. We don't have anything which is flying, which is big anymore. Do you think you had the mandate from the donors um, back in the summer to spend that money, £50,000 plus, on a Canberra? We fundraised specific for the Canberra and again, auditable, we can demonstrate that the money we raised, which was earmarked for the camera, we spent on the camera, and we didn't suck in any other funds from the trust to pay for it. Um, that I can show. There was a, a near airworthy PR9 available at the same time for, you know, around the money you, you paid all in for, for the um, WK163. Why go for that, was that one and not the PR9? XH134, mm. is that the one? We took advice on that. Um, one of my trustees is a guy called Ken Smart, who is the uh, he was the chief air um, inspector for the AAIB. The problem with the PR9 is a single-seater cockpit, and you would have a lot of trouble um, with getting another or you know, more pilots uh, up to speed on the type and clear clear to fly the aircraft. It's also much more complicated aircraft than the B6. It's got I believe it's got powered flying controls and, and additional complexity that makes it more, more difficult to maintain. Uh, it's also um, not the original type. Uh, from a heritage point of view, it is n not interesting. Uh, so for a number of reasons, we decided that WK163 was the aircraft to go to. Do you think a Canberra has enough pull with the public um, as compared to, say, the Vulcan? No, not at the moment. Uh, I would be the first one to agree is nothing like the pull of the, of the Vulcan. However, once we get going with a campaign, uh, we can, I believe, generate more interest than we've got at the moment. There are some significant factors that I've covered which make the aircraft really important. Um, as ever, um, she's a noisy jet. We hope that we could actually encourage a degree of affection over the time, but I'd be the first one to admit it's not going to be like 558. And you mentioned earlier five years as a time frame. Is that realistic, given that at the moment there's no money for it? We haven't started down the route uh, of, of fundraising. We haven't actually thought about the campaign or anything like that. Um, I'm, as I mentioned, quite keen that we put together what I think would be a pretty persuasive application for a grant to the HLF. We have a track record as an organisation. And... Uh, I have got, actually got a reputation of being endlessly optimistic. <laughs> I'm optimistic we would we would succeed there, but um, as ever, we will go down whatever route um, uh, occurs to us to achieve our goals. Have you had preliminary chats with the HLF about potentially yes, getting we have. Canberra? Yes, we have. And how receptive were they to the idea? Receptive. Enough to give you faith to en say en this en is... Enough, enough to think I need to put three months into writing a superb application. Even that, even that grant cycle is like two years before you get the money. So we have folded that all that into. Uh, at the moment, my main focus is getting the new hangar set up. You mentioned the new hangar and also this Red Bull-esque 
um, long, long, long-term plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that Etna? Etna will be the Etna. The Etna concept was all about inspiring the young in engineering and and, and training. I don't know if you know, but I'm actually also a trustee of young engineers, and that, together with my own experience, motivates me to try and get youngsters involved with things that work. Which is why the Red Bull um, example is so compelling. Um, of course, uh, Red Bull as a company have very very deep pockets. Yes, of course they do. And you don't. Not. We don't, but we know people who do. And how, well, but those people didn't come on board with the Vulcan, did they? No, but we kept talking. But, but the, the, Vulcan, the Vulcan was successful. Remember back to our original business model in 2008, we were looking to get commercial sponsorship to fly it. That collapsed with the banking uh, issue. Mm. Um, but we succeeded nonetheless, and it's going to be the same. You don't worry that classic jets, given Shoreham, are now perhaps too toxic for, for companies to invest huge sums in? No, I think it's the way it's done. Um, I think the more interesting facet to this is the way companies are buying into the importance of it getting the young involved with engineering and technology and aviation that's far more important um, I'm I don't like visiting dusty museums and seeing things that are static and not working it has to hum it has to be alive and that's the sort of thing that turns youngsters on as well so the Etna concept is all about that and part of what we're thinking in the future will be that Etna concept but money terms what 18 to 25 million ish that's the about? capital that's the capital required to basically build what we're in our vision and how secure would you have to be in terms of knowing you could get that before you could make a start on uh, on, on building whatever it was going to be absolutely we would need to be i mean we're, t we're talking here about uh, grant funding we're talking about uh, some level of um, corporate sponsorship uh, regional level funding there there are all sorts of different funding sources that exist for this sort of thing but at the end of the day what you're doing is turning out youngsters that go into uh, engineering technology etc which is exactly what they want in the south yorkshire area without wishing to get too negative something we've not seen mentioned before is what would happen to xh558 and wk163 in a worst case scenario where the trust ceased to be solvent if in the worst case we went into administration, uh, became insolvent, then under the governing constitution of the trust, there's actually a paragraph which talks about what happens to assets. Um, we're always in a position to pay our creditors, there's no question about that. So if we did close down, the asset would be available. And under the rules of our uh, governing document, we would have to move the aircraft, both aircraft, into a charity that had a similar objective. So whoever that would be, I don't know. Uh, but there is a uh, there is a mechanism, a set of rules under which we'd operate in those circumstances. And heaven forbid, but you know, over my dead body, is that going to happen? Finally, I asked Dr. Fleming for his honest assessment on what he thinks the future holds. I think very much um, as we are at the moment. Uh, certainly, in three months' time, um, hibernating. Uh, I hope that we're going to be, in six months' time, uh, be able to demonstrate work on the new hangar 
and something like a year it may take slightly more but what I'm hoping is that on that time scale there'll be uh, people will be able to see what this is all about where we're going to be moving into at that level things will be built very nearly nearing completion so cautious optimism as ever so there in his own words is dr robert Fleming. And yes, he put the coffees on expenses. Uh, go to our forums at airshows.co.uk to tell us what you thought of it. And you can, of course, support the project at vulcantothesky.org. My thanks to Dr. Fleming and to Plains TV for their permission to use their audio archive in this programme. From myself, Dan O'Hagan, thanks for listening and goodbye. Until the next Display Frequency. Right.